Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, welcome back. Welcome home. Good to be home. Going to bring bring a little higher energy this time, Tommy. Uh, I was kind of half brain dead last time. I apologize. Listen, your brain was working just fine as far as I can <laughs> yeah, tell. Yeah, the gears were, the gears were turning, just uh, not that fast. Have you recovered? You know, I have, but um, I think I've said this before on this podcast. Like uh, jet lag is one of those things where you feel like you realize you're not. 30 anymore yeah you know? it just doesn't go away yeah, just, it turns out you're just yeah, always yeah, it tired just, just lingers you know you get yeah, 40 yeah uh sometimes i prepare a light anecdote at the top end this time this is a little less so uh as i think you know last week marked the 50th anniversary of the cia packed military coup in chile yes when our friend hank henry kissinger yeah backed uh pinochet general pinochet toppled toppled the democratically elected president salvador allende you too could do that and then have a gala party thrown at the new Republic library 50 years later for your yes birthday. yes so ben kissinger not just a proponent of the coup maybe the principal architect of the whole thing an eagle-eyed pod save the world listener who lives in chile posted a photo from his local bookstore into the Discord channel, the Pod Save the World Discord channel, our subscription chat thing, uh, of Kissinger's book on sale in Chile last week. The fucking stones on that guy. Yeah, yeah. Selling yeah. your book on the 50th anniversary man of who, a coup. Uh, was quoted on the Nixon White House tape saying, uh, some things are too important to leave up to Chilean voters. I think that was the exact quote. <laughs> I mean, um, just, yeah. there's no justice in the world. No, uh, yeah, unless you're Henry Kissinger, and then there's a lot of it. There's a lot of cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's your a lot justice. of cash. Yeah. Unbelievable. I just had to bring that up because it's so galling. But we have a lot to cover today. Uh, we got the Canadians accusing the Indian government of assassinating a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. The, the U.S. and Iran conducted a prisoner swap that coincides with the one-year anniversary of the Masa Amini protest movement. The U.N. General Assembly is happening as we speak, and we ask the question, does anyone care? <laughs> uh, Bibi Netanyahu is in the U.S. More Chinese ministers are going missing. There's a Putin stooge rumored dead. Uh, the Pentagon briefly misplaced a fighter jet and so much more. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of weird yeah. sort of yeah. stories going yeah. on out there. Uh, and then I just spoke with former British member of parliament and cabinet minister Rory Stewart about his new book, How Not to Be a Politician. The book gets into just how screwed up British government was top to bottom when he got in there, like kind of, you know, selfish, you know, superficial members of parliament. One of them threatened to punch him in the face. Yeah. Uh, we talk about government. We talked about his his work uh, delivering assistance to an NGO in his post-political life. We talk about the podcast he does. Uh, the rest is politics. And look, I think the book will make us all feel a little bit better about the mess that is American politics, because they've sort of seemed like they had their shit together the last couple of years, post-Boris, or post-Liz Trust, I should say. But uh, the book is no. a nice look back. Yeah, not not entirely have their shit together. Not entirely. That was my my read from a couple of days in London. From your days in the UK. Yes. Real quick, Ben, before we get to the news, there's another Republican debate coming up on September 27th. The last one was terrible. If you don't want to watch it alone or on Elon Musk's awful website, join us in the Crooked Discord. Go to crooked.com slash friends to sign up. Join us. We'll all be uh, talking about it together. Headliner Vivek the Fake, huh? <laughs> Vivek the Fake uh, headliner. Yeah, yeah. Trump won't be in town again. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. Vivek takes. Also, if you like to see me suffer, um, check out my YouTube show, Liberal Tears. Uh, it's a show I do with Brian Tyler Cohen. We like to rank fun things in political history when you when i win i get to create a punishment for him when i lose i get punished he made me eat one of those 
Pocky chips that are like the hottest chip known to man. And we did this uh, like a day after it was actually discontinued because it was proven to be unsafe. Um, and so the results are uh, sitting there on wow, YouTube. Yeah, you've got like you've got YouTube star written all over you. One of the worst kind of 48 yeah. hours of my life. That's not good. Yeah, no, so let's try to avoid for that. a variety of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Ben, so let's start with this shocking news out of Canada where Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that agents of the government of India carried out an assassination of a Sikh leader and Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. Uh, Hardeep Singh Nijar was murdered in British Columbia in June. He was born in India, but has lived in Canada for more than 25 years. Nijar's friends believe he was targeted for organizing a non-binding referendum in Canada on whether to create an independent Sikh state back in India. Here's a clip from Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Canada has declared its deep concerns to the top intelligence and security officials of the Indian government. Last week at the G20, I brought them personally and directly to Prime Minister Modi in no uncertain terms. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open, and democratic societies conduct themselves. Uh, it's interesting that after the G20, the Indian government put out a statement that referenced concern about extremist elements in Canada. So they were kind of getting ready for this to go public. Um, so Canada also ordered the expulsion of an Indian operative uh, intelligence operative and, and canceled a trade mission to India. India says the allegations are absurd, but of course they did tit for tat and they kicked out a Canadian diplomat slash intelligence operative working uh, in India. Uh, last year, the Indian government declared that the individual was murdered. Mr. Nijar was a terrorist. In 2016, they accused him of being involved in a 2007 bombing uh, in a theater. There is a large Sikh diaspora in Canada. The 2021 census reported there were 770,000 people who call Sikhism uh, their religion. Uh, Trudeau said he briefed the U.S. and the U.K. on all of this. So I think, Ben, that'll probably raise questions about all the chummy group photos with Prime Minister Modi at the G20. So, Ben, this is shocking, very troubling. I'm preemptively worried that it will get swept under the rug in the name of yeah. everyone needing India to push back on China for some reason. But uh, what do you think happens now? Wow. Yeah, this is a big one. Um, and you know, I was just in Montreal actually this weekend. I, I actually saw uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, came by uh, reception we're having. And then, um, how's he looking? He's looking very good actually. Nice. Uh, yeah. the haircut and, looked high and tight and, and well shaped. Yeah, it was well I done. I mean, as someone without hair, you know, I, I particularly <laughs> noted it. And then I actually was, uh, a moderated panel with Melanie Jolie, the foreign minister. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Cool. Uh, going to come on the pod by the way. Nice. Um, but, how many languages does she speak? Like Nine, probably. Yeah, well, more than more than us. More Let's than just us. Say yeah, that. better English too. Um, but to get serious here, um, first of all, I, I like. I think we really need to stop here and, and, like, I know we've, you know, we've been favorable to Trudeau on this podcast, but I think he deserves a lot of credit here. Yeah, um, it's not easy because for it's a not easy. That size. And there are a lot. It's a smaller country, and we've seen a lot of countries kind of look the other way at autocratic behavior you know, put other interests first, you know, trade interests or not wanting to like, you know, rock the boat too much. And what I like about this, it was like, these are the facts. 
And, you know, I saw today the Indian government came out and kind of aggressively denied this and took some shots at the Canadians. Trudeau came out again and said, we reject that denial. We have this information. We're just following the facts where they lead. And it leads to the conclusion that the Indian government killed this person, by the way, like right outside a a Sikh temple too. I mean, this was a brazen, brazen, uh, you know, a bunch of guys in masks and guns just, you know, assassinating somebody. Um, It it is part of a very worrying trend in terms of countries doing this generally. Uh, The most notable one, of course, is Khashoggi uh, in Turkey, Um, the kind of killing of people um, outside of the borders. I mean, you don't want to see extrajudicial killing anywhere, but um, violating kind of the most basic rules of international relations. Um, it's a worrying trend about uh, Modi and his government. It's worth pointing out that there's two other Sikh leaders who have, who have mysteriously died around the same time, one in Pakistan and one in the UK. Yeah. And we've talked, by the way, on this podcast about some of their efforts, you know, they, to, to roll up a Sikh separatist inside of India. Um, but They th- shut down internet to an entire province, like the whole state. Yeah. Um, And by the way, like, not as if there's some civil war happening in India, too. I mean, so it speaks to kind of a paranoid autocratic mindset that we see infusing Indian politics under Modi. Um, So that's, it's worrying. And it's good that Trudeau did this. And it's good that, that, by the way, credit also to the Canadian conservatives um, who have, you know, got a bit of a MAGA flavor to them of, of late, but they kind of all rallied together. I thought that was like important. That, God, that must feel good. Yeah. The opposition leader said like- <laughs> Remember you know, that? Yeah. He he was very clear on and kind of backing the government on this. That's the first point. Um, the second point is, this is clearly based on Canadian intelligence. Canada is part of the five eyes. So I would be absolutely shocked if it were not the case that the US and or the UK, Australia, New Zealand, that that this is not intelligence that draws on potentially, you know, I don't know, but like you'd have to assume that 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 this is something that might be based on intelligence that, that we might have. I would hope that the Biden administration doesn't duck this thing because it's po- geopolitically inconvenient. Because I, I don't care what your China strategy is. I don't care how much of a foot rub you know, Modi got with the state visit. And this is a very close ally <laughs> just to the north of us that is a solid friend and partner on everything. And if their people in their country are getting killed, uh, we should have something to say about that. So I haven't really seen much comment from the U.S. government yet. Um, but I would hope that we don't duck this. And that leads to the point of like, we've talked to this before, like, I understand the geopolitical motivation here. India is a country of over a billion people. Um, obviously, any China strategy would be stronger if India is part of a collection of countries or, you know, opposing certain behavior by the Chinese. I, I, I do think we just need to raise the question, though, like, other than these visits and what what are we what what are we getting out of this? You know, because we're looking the other way at a lot of stuff and... It's not entirely clear to me, you know, Modi's buying Russian oil. Um, he's shown up at the BRICS summit and kind of announcing the parallel world order there. Yeah. Um, the G20 that he hosted had a very weak statement on Ukraine. So at some point, you know, uh, I think we need to see what the results are uh, of this. And if the result is a leader feeling that he has the impunity to kill people in Canada because he's, a, you know, geopolitical hot date, um, that's not a good look. No. Know? No. And just for what it's worth, 
there was a, you know, we talked about this before, a sick insurgency in the 80s and 90s that killed thousands of people. Uh, there was a sick extremist who was convicted in the 1985 bombing of an Air India flight that went from Canada to India that killed 329 people on board. But that's, you know, ancient history. We've, I've, we've seen no evidence that this individual who was assassinated in June was involved in anything violent. Like, what, what, what are these guys going to organize and do from Canada? Yeah, I mean, I mean like look, a, re- a non-binding referendum. What he, are you talking about? He was a separatist. He was in favor of there being a separate Sikh state in right. Punjab. Not a crime. All, all true, but yeah, like not a crime, and and try to res- you know resolve that diplomatically. You know, protest all you want with the Canadians. India and the Indian government has every right to hammer the Canadian government to complain if they don't like things that are happening, and to share evidence if they think someone should be detained, but not to go and kill somebody in you know <laughs> in in front of a temple uh, on the other side of the world. So, like this is a trend you know we should be watching. Of you, we've seen Rwanda. Um, kill uh, dissidents, uh, allegedly, um, in third countries, including the U.S., by the way. Um, so, you know, obviously Putin's killed uh, and poisoned people. Mm-hmm. Mohammed um, bin Salman. Yeah, all over the place, Mohammed bin Salman. So, you know, I don't really want to live in a world where, you know, like assassinations in third countries becomes normalized. I think no. that's why you. I would hope that at least the Five Eyes countries um, come out and support Canada in the days ahead. Yeah, they just draw the... Hardest possible line on this front. Yeah. Um, Some good news, Ben, on the Iran front. So there were five Americans uh, who, in some cases, had been detained in Iran for many, many years, I think up to eight years, were finally allowed out of the country on Monday. Their first stop was Dubai. Then they go on to America after medical checkups. We talked about the outlines of the prisoner swap that got these guys out of uh, prison a few weeks ago. Basically, Iran releases five Americans. The U.S. dismisses charges uh, against five Iranians in U.S. custody. And the U.S. unfreezes $6 billion in Iranian assets that have been stuck in South Korea because of U.S. sanctions. Basically, uh, that money came from what were was at the time lawful Iranian oil sales to South Korea. And then they get them, that cash got frozen by U.S. sanctions. The $6 billion gets transferred to a bank account in Qatar where Iran can use it to pay for food, agricultural products, medicine, things like that. Diplomacy fans, like us, hope that this swap is some sort of confidence-building mechanism. It could lead to more talks, more agreements. Uh, Republicans say this deal will incentivize more kidnapping. These funds will allow Iran to spend uh, this other cash they have on weapons or other malign activities. Uh, sort of the same old arguments you always hear. But very good news, obviously, for the families of these hostages. Um, I don't know, Ben, maybe we're not in DC, so we're like not in the thick of the bullshit. But this doesn't seem like it has reached like the fever pitch that the pallets of cash did or the Bergdahl prisoner swap did back in the Obama days. Uh, do you agree with that? And like, how hopeful are you that this could lead to more diplomacy? Yeah, I mean, they're, the Republicans are kind of running the same play. I, I noticed there's like three different hearings on Iran policy. And and yet it just doesn't feel like the temperature is that hot. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think the, the chief reason is, as we said before, like when this stuff was happening around 2015, it was kind of the main event in our politics for a few months, like the Iran deal and everything. Now you've got you know, in domestic politics, a government shutdown, you've got an impeachment proceeding that makes no sense. Right. Then internationally, you've got a, a hot war in Ukraine. You've got a much more intense geopolitical competition with China. It just feels like this is not the same temperature level, no matter how much Republicans will freak out. And there's something kind of healthy about that. Yeah. You know, um, now I do think that this was a multi-step process. 
And so the fact that each of the steps kind of came off as was described at the beginning of the process, they're released from prison, then they're you know in Iran for a period of time, and then they're allowed to come back, and then this money moves around. Um, it does feel like a confidence-building measure. Can we trust each other to follow through on a deal? Will the Iranian government, which is under different leadership than when we made those deals in 2015, follow through on something? They did. Um, the question is, can this lead to nuclear diplomacy that at least freezes the state of the Iranian program in exchange for you know, probably a larger version of this, like the Iranians get some of the money that has been frozen, that is their money, um, through creative accounting? Uh, and, and look, if it sounds kind of shady, like it has to go to some Qatar bank. Well, that's for a couple of reasons. One, because of our sanctions, um, you, it has to be kind of <laughs> circuitous, um, but also because we're trying to limit where this money goes. Right. And so the fact that it's in this kind of receivership in Qatar is in part a, a mechanism to ensure that it goes for these humanitarian purposes. So all in all, like diplomacy is always complicated. It always involves compromise. People are home. Confidence has been built. This is a relatively small amount of money compared to what Iran has lost um, of their own money in the enforcement of sanctions, and hopefully it leads to some breakthrough in the nuclear file. Yeah, and hopefully Fox continues to get more coverage like John Fetterman and the Senate dress code than than this story. It is worth noting. I missed that, by the way. Like I, I saw that in our text chain, and and you're so good. You know, I'm not like as plugged into the domestic silliness. You know? it's but if so they want to cover John Fetterman's uh, hoodies and not the Iran agreement, that's fine. They're you know? obsessed with it. That's good. They're obsessed with it. We could have used Fetterman in his hoodies back in 2015. In tan suit. Yeah, yeah in tan yeah. suit days. So it is worth noting that there are uh, some Iranian activists who are not happy about the this deal, at least the timing, because it comes right at the one year anniversary of the death of Masa Amini, who is the 22 year old woman who was murdered by Iran's so called morality police. That murder led to these huge protests and then a brutal crackdown on the protesters. Human rights groups believe that up to 500 protesters have been killed in the past year. I think at least seven were arrested and then executed. Uh, tens of thousands have been detained. Um, because they are the shittiest people in the world, Iranian security forces prevented Masa Amini's family from visiting her grave on the anniversary of her death, and they briefly arrested her father. Uh, some Iranian activists say, you know, the timing of this swap or this news is a slap in the face uh, to the people who have been putting their lives on the line to protest. I will say, like, I, I completely understand that frustration. Uh, the timing definitely is unfortunate. Substantively, though, I, I just I don't know that the ultra hardline approach is helping anyone at, at the moment. And I just I don't know, it would be hard for me to justify letting these Americans rot in prison any longer because the timing felt bad. But I don't know what you think. No, look, <laughs> It's interesting. I mean, the Iranians might have had the, they might have done this timing inten uh, intentionally. I mean, because this deal's kind of been in the works for a while. It was kind of announced a few weeks ago. So that's possible and that's cynical and terrible and, and uh, for the Iranians to do that. Um, and I understand the frustration of those people um, who are complaining about the timing. I would say, though, like to your point, we can either get people home or not. You know, we can either try to stop the Iranians from crossing certain nuclear thresholds or not. And and I don't think that the ultra hardline position, you know, was on the precipice of of causing the Iranian government to collapse or, you know, to make huge concessions to that protest movement. I think ultimately what's going to change things inside of Iran or or Iran are, are Iranians and the pressure that's building up from within. Um, so, you know, this is, you, you do diplomacy like this with adversaries. Um, I, I don't think, put it this way, I, I just think not doing this agreement, 
I don't think would lead to any different outcome with that protest movement as, as tragic as it is. I wish it would. But, but you know, I, I, I think that you, you try to accomplish what you can while keeping the spotlight on the movement that has inspired so many people over the last year. Yeah. Uh, if you want to learn more about this prisoner deal, a uh, friend of the pod, Jason Rezaian, who was himself held in Iran for 544 days, held hostage, did an interview with Brett McGurk in the Washington Post that's worth reading. Brett was the one who negotiated the deal. Um, and and we should say Jason and his wife, Yegi, are huge supporters of the protest movement. Yes. And I think Jason is also supportive of this step. So, you know, it shows there's, there's nuance here. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance. So, Ben, the United Nations General Assembly, or UNGA, as we call it in nerd world, is happening as we speak. I think it's fair to ask whether it will accomplish anything other than pissing off all of Manhattan because of the traffic. So the leaders of France, Britain, China, and India won't be attending. Putin won't be there either, but he's got kind of a a decent excuse with the, in the form of an ICC arrest warrant. So uh, UNGA will be important for President Zelensky and the Ukrainians who are trying to have as many meetings as possible to rally support for their cause. Uh, President Biden gave a speech on Tuesday. Here's a clip. Russia believes that the world will grow weary and allow it to brutalize Ukraine without consequence. But I ask you this, if we abandon the core principles of the United States to appease an aggressor, can any member state in this body feel confident that they are protected? If we allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? I'd respectfully suggest the answer is no. We have to stand up to this naked aggression today and deter other would-be aggressors tomorrow. So you hear Biden there trying to make an argument that supporting Ukraine is bigger than just the current fight. So, Ben, let's talk about UNGA itself for a minute. Do you think the poor attendance this year is because the world has maybe decided that the U.N., is not the place where you get a lot done. Or could this be more mundane? Like there was just the G20. Everyone went to India. Now there's the UN General Assembly. I think the next COP meeting is in a couple of weeks. Maybe that's just too much travel for these world leaders in too little time. I don't know. I'm making excuses here. No, I think, I, well, I think the two things are related. I, I think UNGA does not matter nearly as much as it used to. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a second. And I think the G20 timing is actually evidence of that. So mm-hmm. in other words, the G20, I think, has become what UNGA used to be, right? UNGA used to be the place where all the major powers got together to take on whatever the global agenda was at that moment. And the reality is it, there used to be some separation intentionally between the G20 and UNGA, um, most years at least. This year, it's like, well, we had the real meeting, mm-hmm. um, which was in India at the G20, and most people showed up for that, except Xi Jinping and Putin. Um but now the list of countries not showing up to this thing is really long. It's even like Rishi Sunak, who I think is, you know, he's in his fantasy camp of being prime minister. He may not have another turn at it. And even he's not showing up for, like, for UNGA, you know. Biden is the only head of state from the five permanent security council members. Like, yeah. hey, Rishi, like you're, you guys are clinging to that perm rep seat yeah. by a thread, pal. Like <laughs> yeah. maybe show up for the meeting. And the, the reality, though, is that the, that the UN is, this is one of the biggest stories in the world that doesn't get a lot of attention. The UN is totally broken. And it's not the fault of like UN personnel, some of whom, most of whom are, are wonderful. It's because it's been broken by the member states, right? So Biden is absolutely right. The most foundational reason for the UN to exist is to prevent a war just like the war in Ukraine, where one big country kind of swallows up, tries to swallow up a yep. smaller one. The reality is that the Security Council will never deal with that or any other issue because Russia and China won't allow it to. 
Um, and and so the Security Council is no longer a venue to solve any international security problem, even ones that seem like there should be shared interests, like a, a war in Sudan or something. Um, so the Security Council doesn't really matter in the same way that it once did. And then there are these other meetings, the BRICS meeting, the G20 meeting, the COP meeting, which a lot of countries will show up at in a few weeks, that feel like you know that's where real business is done. UNGA is basically a reason for there to be a bunch of bilateral meetings in New York City right now. It's you know? like you're all in the same place at the same time. You might as well hang out. Yeah, and 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 you know there, there's that's why I'd go by the way if I was Rishi. No, that's true. And, there, and there's Macron yeah, for... there's all these side events and there's a lot of development work done around the sustainable development goals and there's you know and so there's stuff to do. I mean, I'm actually going to New York like twice in the next couple of weeks for for things that are of that nature, but. I just don't think it matters anywhere. And it's not it's not the fault of the U.S. government. This is just it, the U.N. doesn't work the way it was meant to anymore. At some point, there's going to have to be some significant overhaul and reform of the U.N. system. That's very hard when the biggest countries in the world totally disagree. Right. And the permanent members, right, you got Russia and China gumming up anything that we try to do internationally. And then you have the non-permanent members, which right now <laughs> includes Gabon, which has had a coup. Yeah. So no one knows how to deal with them. The U.S. hasn't recognized it as a coup yeah. yet, nor have we recognized Niger as a coup yet. Yeah. So yeah, it's incredibly complicated and uh, the processes are broken and no one has figured out how to I'm fix them. I'm nostalgic for the, you know, the old Unga. The, like, the good old days. Yeah, the good old days, you know, big multilateral <laughs> meetings in like lots of different countries. Like and Gaddafi giving the, a two-hour yeah, speech. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pitching a tent at Trump's place in Bedminster, that actually happened. And then, like the bar at the Waldorf Astoria. I mean, you, you the knew bed the, bugs yeah, at like, the Waldorf Astoria. Things were already going bad when the the Chinese bought the Waldorf, so we couldn't mm. stay there anymore because it was, was probably going to be full of listening devices. You know, so it's just it's just not what it was. You know, it is not. Uh, I mean, you remember in two thousand nine, Obama went chaired a Security Council session that passed a resolution on non-proliferation, nuclear non-proliferation, it was a pretty big deal. Like, th there was big business being done at UNGA. And we did a bunch of Middle East peace stuff, right? We, and we did Sudan, like, yep. you know, the whole, like, uh, midwifing of um, the South Sudan independence. Like, there was just a lot of stuff that, that kind of stuff doesn't happen at UNGA no. anymore. And so, you know, after the UN Security Council meetings, uh, Zelensky's going to go to Washington. He's going to meet with members of Congress. There's a bipartisan meeting on the Senate side where he's probably got enough support yeah. to get more funding. Uh, I wonder what kind of meetings he'll get with Republicans on the House side. There's real concern at the moment about, uh, you know, Congress passing any funding bill, let alone with an extra $20 billion for Ukraine. Uh, the New York Times, Ben, had a big piece about how Zelensky's tone is shifting from kind of pressuring countries and maybe scolding people a little bit to gratitude. I'm, I'm sure that's so grating for him, you know, given what Ukraine is experiencing, but it's also probably smart politics given how the vibe in Washington right now. I think, I mean, first of all, you know, the Zelensky's trip here, the, the DC piece is much more important than the New York piece. I mean, he hit the notes totally. today about the global food crisis, but it kind of feels like enlisting a lot of global South countries to the Ukrainian side is, is just not happening. That doesn't mean he shouldn't do that work, but I, I'm curious about the Kevin McCarthy meeting, you know, because Kevin McCarthy is a real tough guy talking about no blank checks for Ukraine and stuff when he's doing like right wing media. Um, I'm trying to imagine Kevin McCarthy sitting across the table from Zelensky and telling him, you know, uh, I can't provide you with this assistance because Matt Gates might force a vote. Because he's mean to me. Yeah, because yeah. Matt Gates yeah. might be mean to you. I mean, it just think about that. Like there's like tens of thousands of Ukrainians dying. And Kevin McCarthy's more afraid of Matt Gates than, you know, he is committed to supporting Ukraine. I think, you know, what he wants to do, Zelensky, is really fortify 
not only the Democrats, but the Republicans who do agree with him so that they become more invested in pressuring McCarthy and the crazy House Republicans. I think probably what we're looking at here, Tommy, is like, and this gets into domestic politics, but like there's going to be a government shutdown. Maybe there'll be some huge end of the year spending package that yes, some I'm sure they'll ram the mess. Ukraine assistance into that. And, you know, the Matt Gaetzes of the world will throw a tantrum and Kevin McCarthy will yell. I think what Zelensky did that was also interesting and notable is after replacing the defense minister, the new defense minister fired every deputy defense minister as like the first thing that he did, essentially. I think they're really trying to send a message that they're rooting out corruption. One thing that I think should be considered with assistance is greater kind of inspector general mechanisms mm-hmm. to track. Look, the Ukrainians wouldn't have fired all those people if there wasn't a corruption problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, clearly, there is a corruption problem. Uh, that's not to say that most of this aid is going in the wrong right. direction. When some of it is reported yeah. to, like overpriced eggs. It's, uh, yeah, exactly. This is not like people stealing, you know, Abrams tanks or something. This is people double counting for food and you yeah. know, things like this. Um, but, you know, good to kind of show that you're taking that seriously. Um, I think the issue is that they'll get probably that next package but that's probably the last bit they're going to get before our election. Oh, you know? definitely. And so the whole next year, I mean, part of why he's shifting gratitude is that, you know, he can go to Europe and try to get smaller, you know, installments. But whatever he gets from us this time is that's kind of it, you know, that and whatever the, you know, few billion dollars the Pentagon finds buried in the Under cu- cushions, you know. Yeah, yeah. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld.
Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. They respond within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, staying as long as needed. Refugee and displaced families are amazingly resilient, but in places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Lebanon, displaced families are experiencing adverse winter weather on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many refugee and displacement camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions, especially as climate conflict and economic turmoil have driven up food prices, destroyed infrastructure, and driven millions of people from their homes. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild, including winter items, emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, and cash assistance. Uh, I have to say, the IRC is an amazing organization. They do heroic work all over the globe. And unfortunately, it has never been more important and needed. Uh, If you are thinking about giving, please consider giving to the IRC. And if you're going to give at the end of the year, uh, maybe move that up because they could use your help now. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Let's talk more about Russia and Ukraine, because you mentioned uh, these six deputy defense ministers uh, that have been sacked, summarily fired. They didn't say why, as you noted, but it does seem likely it's about corruption. You mentioned Abrams tanks. Uh, back in January, the U.S. announced we'd be giving 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Apparently, they're like just now showing up so they might make it to the battlefield in time for the very end of this spring turned summer turned now fall offensive where there certainly hasn't been the kind of progress i think people were hoping to see but it does sound like in some areas the ukrainians are maybe uh starting to exhaust some russian forces near bakhmut there's another point uh in the south where i think they've broken through the first line of defenses uh in some small areas and maybe now that could lead to a broader breakthrough we'll see um Also, Ben, uh, there was a report in the New York Times that this awful missile strike that hit a market in eastern Ukraine on September 6th uh, and killed 15 civilians was actually friendly fire. It was a Ukrainian air defense missile that, you know, went went to the wrong place and and landed uh, on Ukrainian soil. Um, Finally, there are rumors swirling that Putin stooge and Chechen warlord Ramzan Kadyrov is in a coma. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he just did too much MMA and he's like really sleepy. I don't know. Maybe he's dead. Um, his Instagram account posted a video of Kadyrov walking around saying like, uh, you know, he's fine to go outside. He's like loser or something. Some sort of like trolley internet speak. But, you know, he's a terrible person. His forces have been accused of committing horrific atrocities. So if Kadyrov were somehow off the battlefield, that might be a good thing. Yeah. If you listen to uh, Another Russia, the podcast I do with Jean Sova, Kadyrov also seemingly implicated in the assassination of Boris Nemtsov. Just a horrible, horrible person. Um, when was that? Was that 05 or 06? Th- no, that was in uh, um, 2015. Oh, shit. Oh, so later. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, his father was in charge, right? Like his father took power in, I think, 2003. I think Ramzan took over and. 2007. Yeah. So that would make sense if he was sort of Yeah, he was uh try he was constantly trying to kind of prove, you know, uh his the trade-off that he has with Putin, which is he gets to kind of have his own militia and do whatever the hell he wants down in Chechnya, but he does a bunch of dirty work for Putin. But I mean it'd be pretty interesting if if Prigozhin and 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 Kadyrov both uh like kick the bucket here before, you know, 2 years into this war. I mean not that there's with Kadyrov it seems like there's probably not a linkage, but those are two of the kind of most odious characters oh, that yeah. were carrying out Putin's dirty work. Real changing the guard. <laughs> yeah, yes, probably not replaced by much better people. But um look, your your basic update is 
I mean, the, the, the one thing we should say is that last year, when Ukraine had those big breakthroughs in Kherson in the south and, and Kharkiv in the north, it was kind of in the fall. But Russia's more dug in this time, Way more, yeah. you know, more trenches. And so if it, the front line solidifies, I think these questions around negotiation may come up, but Putin has no incentive to negotiate until he knows the result of our election. Right. So I just think we're kind of in a stalemate, um, hopefully with some gains for Ukraine until you know, we know who the next president of the United States is. The other thing the Ukrainians are seemingly doing with great effect is hammering targets in uh, Crimea with missile strikes. And they also nearly either took out a, another major Russian ship and maybe even a submarine that were at port yeah. getting repaired. So, you know, they're having some tactical successes. But Ben, back to the UN General Assembly. So on Wednesday, President Biden is going to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu uh, in New York. It's their first face-to-face since Bibi came back to power. The meeting was not held at the White House uh, to show Biden's displeasure with Netanyahu's recent attacks on the Israeli judiciary. Netanyahu will be fresh off his meeting with Elon Musk, helping him mop up uh, after some anti-Semitism charges and some attacks on the ADL. So that's a lot of fun. Some things that could be on the agenda for Biden and Bibi. Uh, hopefully, Biden pushes puts a ton of pressure on him to stop with this judicial coup that he's undertaking midway through it. Uh, I would love to hear Biden press Netanyahu on stopping the export of Israeli spyware to bad actors. Uh, Haaretz had a big piece about how Israeli cyber companies have figured out how to use advertising technology to hack our phones. That's fun. The Washington Post reported that one recent victim of an attack from the Israeli-made Pegasus spyware was the editor of Medusa News, one of the last independent news outlets in Russia. All the good guys getting attacked yep, by this yep, yep, yep. Israeli spyware. And then, Ben, there's almost certainly going to be talk about this uh, frequently floated now Israeli-Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia normalization deal. There were reports over the weekend that the Saudis had declared the talk's dead, but the New York Times reported today that they're still kind of happening and that it could include a mutual defense agreement like the ones the U.S. has with South Korea and Japan. So, Ben, I don't know, man. Like, I wish Biden wasn't meeting with BB at all. Um, Tony Blinken assured us, and I believe him, that they wouldn't do a deal that wasn't in the U.S. interest. I just am so skeptical of how a deal with this guy or MBS would ever be in the U.S. interest. But what do you think will come out of this? I mean, I, I I assume that the main topic is the Saudi normalization deal. I think part of what's interesting about that is it's ostensibly an Israel-Saudi normalization deal, but it it's basically a U.S.-Saudi negotiation. Um, and so I presume what's happening is that Biden is going back to Bibi and how do you feel about us building a nuclear program in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> like, uh, what will you do for the Palestinians that might make the Saudis feel like at least optically they can do this deal. Like it's, it's all kind of gross. I yeah. mean, you have to do it, I guess, but um, I'm glad he's not at the White House. Uh, I, 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 I'm yet to see either he or MBS kind of take steps that indicate that this normalization deal is something that, um, you know, is, is good for us. Um, they, um, uh, it's, you hear a lot about this deal from the U.S. officials and like Tom Friedman, you know, and, and at a certain point, you know, what what are the views of the Saudis and the and the Israelis on this thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, right. Again, Tony, when we talked to Tony Blinken last week, Secretary of State, he was quite clear that they wouldn't be good with a deal that didn't include some real meaningful progress he towards did say, the Palestinian he did say that. state. Yeah, yeah. 
And so I'm just trying to imagine any scenario where Netanyahu's cabinet allows that to happen because they don't want to foreclose annexation of the West Bank. That they're kind of dedicated to that, right? It's kind of like core part <laughs> it's like of their, their favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I mean, I guess like the and the other question is like in the interim, it's not as if they should be, you know, the the kind of uh, impunity for settler violence, the kind of intimidation, displacement of Palestinians that we've seen. I hope that's on the agenda too, and not just kind of like what kind of symbolic announcements might they make, you know, around uh, a Saudi normalization deal. So I don't know. It, it's. Uh, I'm always a little cynical when it comes to BB because BB is the most cynical personal life. One of the most cynical people on earth. So um, we'll see what comes out of it. Uh, yeah. Not not hugely optimistic here. Detested by generations yeah. of American officials. Yeah. Uh, okay, Ben, lots of little updates uh, on the US-China front. So first of all, our friend Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, had another surprise meeting with his Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi. Uh, this time they were in Malta. Yeah, super spy movie-ish, you know. Very spy uh, movie. Yeah, I, I, you know, I like the venue. It's, uh, you like that? I mean, it seems like a, yeah. it kind of, I figured, I looked at a map, it's kind of it's in an the island in the middle of the Mediterranean, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Maybe I mean, next one can be in like, you know, Monte Cristo or something, you know, like a, <laughs> under a casino. You know. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like you live in Venice, I live in uh, yeah. the east side. I guess it is, is it kind of halfway in between? I don't know. Sort yeah, of, yeah. I don't even next know Next one will be in like a Pacific island somewhere. Well, it was also convenient uh, for uh, Wang Yi because then he went directly to Russia. <laughs> where he uh, has four days of meetings. So Biden's team, they want to ease tensions with China. Yeah. They want to convince them not to give the Russians any weapons. They want to reopen military to military talks, and they want to prepare for a potential meeting between Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping in November. Uh, Putin is supposed to go to Beijing next month. That is not ideal. Uh, but Ben, uh, in more China news, a while back, we talked about how the Chinese foreign minister just disappeared for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yes. And then was summarily replaced. The Wall Street Journal reported that his crime was having a baby out of wedlock while serving as the ambassador to the US. And now things get even weirder as China's defense minister, uh, Li Changfu, has now disappeared. He has not been seen in public for two weeks. There are reports that he might have been arrested for disloyalty or corruption. Uh, hard out there for a <laughs> yeah. Chinese cabinet yeah. minister, man. Uh, well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad Jake is doing that meeting. It's always better to talk uh, than to not talk. The fact that it is Jake Sullivan meeting with the foreign minister instead of Tony Blinken, it, it does suggest that maybe it is about some G Biden communication, right? Yeah, yeah um, it does. Now, the, <laughs> these disappearances, I don't know, man. Like, Oof. I first of all, like the the kid out of wedlock. You always wonder, like, that feels like half the story. Like, uh, I'm sure that's enough to get you in trouble there, but like. Uh, who you know? Maybe if you don't so, disclose it, you're considered a security threat. Yeah, maybe you lied about it. You yeah. know, on, on you know, like d didn't fill out his F SF eighty six form. But man, right? if that was you a know, crime, like, Boris Johnson would be in jail like six <laughs> times <laughs> yeah, over, right? Yeah, yeah, seriously, what are we doing here? Uh, but I mean, this is just a hell of a way to run a superpower, right? Like the d defense minister is disappearing, the foreign minister is disappearing at the same time that yeah, China is supposed to be building this <laughs> parallel world order. I mean, like they they seem to just kind of treat these uh, senior officials like. Uh, these disposable ornaments um, that, that they don't even have to provide an explanation for their disappearance. It's wild. Yeah. It's it is totally, truly wild. Totally wild. Uh, also, did you notice that there was a bunch of reporting at the same time? I'm always, I always notice when there's like similar reports at the same time. To, to me, it suggests like a purposeful briefing. Um, there are some stories about the US-China sort of like intelligence wars. The Times did a big one. Yes. Part of them said like the US 
thinks that the Chinese spy balloon program has been stopped. There's more reporting about how Xi Jinping didn't know about it, was really mad about it when he learned, blah, 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 felt embarrassed. And then there were some interesting details in the Times about how hard it has been for the CIA to do any recruitment in China because there's cameras everywhere. Facial recognition technology says you can't just like, you know, put on your like Mr. Magoo, you yeah. know, like, you know, fake nose and yeah, glasses yeah. thing. The good and old days is tradecraft. Yeah, yeah, the tradecraft is gone. Yeah, they, no is, raincoat and uh, glasses. You <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah. It even says they can measure the gait uh, of U.S. spies. So you got a limp like the usual suspects. Yeah. And it said every U.S. official that gets a job um, in like the intelligence world apparently is just deluged with LinkedIn <laughs> requests from random Chinese officials who just want to get to know you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the hard target there. And, and, and you know, we've had some catastrophic uh, incidents of, like, uh, networks getting rolled up in China. I mean, look, if you run a totally totalitarian society making use of mass surveillance technology, like, you become a harder intelligence target, yeah, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, I'm sure that means that there's a lot of intelligence efforts in, like, third countries and things like that. And at the same time, as we talked about last week, we've seen China get much more aggressive They've got people like researchers in the British Parliament, like they've they've been in uh, other uh, uh, governments, parliaments, and and but yeah, this is you know the characteristic of like a, a a bit of a Cold War vibe to things, you know, and and it is what it is. Uh, speaking of uh, intelligence or lack thereof, the U.S. military was briefly missing an F-35 fighter jet on Sunday. <laughs> uh, the pilot ejected from his plane somewhere near Charleston, South Carolina. U.S. radar lost track of the thing somehow. If I were the military, I'd, I'd spin this and say, it turns out our stealth technology is just too good. Yeah. So the Joint Base Charleston Twitter account tweets out the following message. Quote, we're working with Marine Corps Air Station Beaufort to locate an F-35 that was involved in a mishap this afternoon. The pilot ejected safely. If you have any information that may help our recovery teams locate the F-35, please call the Base Defense Operations Center at blah, 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 like it was a missing dog or something. Yeah. Um, that tweet was probably not the best idea, Ben, because by the time I saw it on Twitter, uh, F-35 was trending along with Havana and Cat Turd. <laughs> I think there must have been a, a right-wing right yeah. thing that just flew to Cuba. So some lovely conspiracy theory bait there. Uh, searchers found the wreckage on Monday north of Charleston. Still not clear why the, why the pilot bailed out. Luckily, no one was hurt. But I'm sure a lot of people are going to be demanding answers about why a $135 million plane is now a flaming pile of metal. I was going to say, have you ever lost anything that cost over $100 million? Not that I can think of. I lost a lot of AirPods. I left my fob at home today. Uh, I had to get, oh, it, to get it up. Oh, to get it up. But it's not $135 million. Um, yeah, that's it's not like something you... Uh, I mean, I think Tom Cruise um, should have been enlisted. I mean, it seems mm. like, uh, you know... It's, he wouldn't have bailed out of that thing. He wouldn't have bailed out of that thing. He would have figured out a way to land yeah, it. he would have rode it to the no ground. No offense to the pilot. Uh, yeah, no, it's not great. And, and it, it, it is... Uh, it's an expensive piece of hardware. I mean, when people talk about cost overruns in the Pentagon, the F-35 program is, is on that list. So it's like a one point something trillion dollar program. You can over feed the a lot of people with that uh, one plane. Yeah. Now, Ben, I don't want to be mean, but I did see someone tweet that between this and Aaron Rodgers, it's been a tough week for overpriced jets. Oh, God. Um, yeah, not a, great, not a great feeling to be a Jets fan, Tommy. I, I was finally fully... On board with mm. our ayahuasca taking, oh, yeah. Joe Rogan podcasting, mm -hmm. you know, like, but he charmed everybody on, on Hard Knocks, you know. Yeah, he did. Four plays in, now we've got, well, I'm sure that the international world, those don't care about the 
Zach Wilson era. Hey, of hey, the, uh, if they're getting but, yeah. Chilean coups at the yeah, front, yeah, they're yeah, getting yeah, they're Zach getting, Wilson yeah. in the back. It's not good. It's not good. Uh, Mac Jones isn't that much better no, than the Patriots yeah. suck. Mac played okay. Um, okay, Ben, file this under uh, only in Australia. This is a real. Oh, good. I, it's been a while since we've <laughs> This is your favorite good, yeah, genre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a BBC News headline. Australian man fined for taking pet snake surfing. <laughs> uh, this guy, I think his name is Higor Fusa. I don't know. Uh, he took his carpet python Shiva surfing, then he filmed it and he put it on Instagram. So I find it disappointing, and I just learned of this, that there's a regulation on the books. And I would think that in Australia you could, if there's anywhere in the world where I, I, I would think that you'd be allowed to take your pet python surfing, I would think that that would be Australia. Yeah. Now, well, do I want to be in the water and see that coming towards me? Not no, particularly. No. But I kind of feel like that's the Aussie vibe. I mean. Yeah. Well, so what, his mistake was putting on Instagram because it made him yeah. a local celebrity, yeah. but it got the uh, the Queensland Department of Environment got their attention, and Science right? yeah. on, on his radar. They fined him 1500 bucks for endangering the snake, mostly. It's a, it's okay. a, it's okay. a cold-blooded animal, yeah. right? So you put him in the water. It's like, what? But... um. Uh, That's the right approach to the problem, though. I like that, that the approach was more about the snake than the people. You know, yeah. It's like a, well, they're worried about spreading disease. Yeah. But here's a clip of the, the dude who took the snake surfing. Yeah, she goes for a swim a little bit and then comes back to the bull and she's just cruising and waiting for the wave, for the perfect wave. <laughs> so he also said, like, she loves it. Usually when she doesn't like something, she starts hissing, but she doesn't hiss in the water. She's always chill. Um, Every time we have one of these Australia segments, the interview clip is perfect. It's exactly (laughs) how I'd want it to be. So you'll love this. Apparently, this same beach is home to an equally famous body surfing duck named Duck. (laughs) (laughs) Some family owns a duck. They took it out in the ocean with them and it just like, it caught one wave and was like, fuck yeah, this is what I do now. Um, we do need to, we do need to do some live content in, in Australia. We have to figure out how oh, to yeah. do it. But, but if we go, people will have to collect for us like a whole range of these stories, and we may need to interview some of these people. All of them. Um, yeah, yeah. But to your point about the fine, I mean, you got to figure like the Queensland Department of Environment and Science, like they've seen some shit. They've seen some shit, man. Like they've seen some animals that you and I can't even imagine what they look like. Like eight foot gator in a yeah, toilet. Yeah, or some, like, some 100 foot worm or some shit. You know, like there's... There's, you know, kangaroos doing up to no good, you know. Uh, I mean, oh. yeah. There was a story the other day. I think it was an Australian woman who, like, was having some, like, fainting and stuff or, like, lightheaded and memory issues, and they found, like, a worm in her brain. Don't uh, Google that like one. That's, like, my nightmare. That's, like, my nightmare. It's worse. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like the it's like the old wives' tale that everyone, like, eats eight spiders a year or whatever. Yeah, 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 like, no, makes me want to fucking yeah, no, die. I don't want that. Uh, okay, on that note, uh, now that everyone's turned off the podcast, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, you'll hear my interview with Rory Stewart about serving in uh, British Parliament, being a minister, and how horrible it was top to bottom. So stick around for that. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. 
Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today wears a lot of hats. He was a cabinet minister, a member of parliament. He served as a diplomat in Iraq and Afghanistan and is the head of a charity called Give Directly, an excellent charity, by the way, which combats extreme poverty through cash transfers. More recently, he is the co-host of the Rest is Politics podcast and the author of a new book, which is either called Politics on the Edge or How Not to Be a Politician. Rory, you have to clarify this for me, but Rory Stewart, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Um, firstly, the book um, is called in the US, How Not to Be a Politician. And the, the book, which has just been published, is an attempt to try to describe what it's like to find a populist, in our case, Boris Johnson, taking over a right-wing party and dragging politics to the extremes and, and what it might feel like for the progressive center to fail to fight against that and then what it might take to try to fight back. And I hope it's a book that has relevance for American readers, European readers, as well as British. Oh, it feels very relevant. Also, I want to say welcome uh, to the podcasting game. You're, you had enormous success, but you're a new entry. So just pro tip for you. If you ever want to end a conversation, clear a room, tell people you're in the podcasting business, it'll shut it down. People walk just, away. just, they'll just walk away. That's the answer, like, is it? That is you don't so need boring. to tell them that, that you're a forensic accountant or anything. You just say you're <laughs> no, a podcaster. No. To say podcasting. Um, So this is a challenging interview for me. There's so much I would like to talk with you about, but let's start with the book. You have a a piece in The Atlantic this week that is adapted from the book about Boris Johnson basically throwing you out of the Tory party because you wouldn't go along with his Brexit plan. There's an audio excerpt on the Rest is Politics podcast feed that folks should check out. It's very fun. My question for you, for a long time, progressives in the US, in the UK, we could kind of cry on each other's shoulders we could at least feel like we are not alone in terms of having the most buffoonish, dishonest leaders uh, running our countries. But now it seems like there's a 50-50 chance that Trump will be the next president, while voters in the UK seem to have moved on from Johnson. What's your secret? How did you guys do it? How can we follow suit? Well, I think the first thing is that we, we shouldn't get too optimistic too soon. 
the, the truth of the matter is, yes, it's great that Boris Johnson, who was a clown, uh, he was a terrible human being, he was a terrible prime minister, it's great that we've got rid of him. But the underlying causes that drove his success, the underlying causes that created populism in the US or the UK, Europe, haven't gone away. And that's basically because the economic system, which you and I and many others believed in, didn't really deliver for people properly. Uh, the 2008 financial crisis was a terrible exposure of many of the problems that we had in our countries. Many of our promises about democracy and international relations failed. And I think the populists were right in a lot of their criticisms. Where they're wrong is in their solutions. And I mm -hmm. think the, the, the danger in Britain is that, yes, at the moment, we've got these two pretty boring, middle-of-the-road, apparently, politicians in the form of Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. One of them a banker, the other one a lawyer. They're, they're not famous for their sense of humor. They don't seem to have any ideological divisions. But the populist move is still very much there. And the chances are that if Rishi Sunak loses the next election, which seems very likely, the Conservative Party will again take a big lurch to the right and again be very dominated by an anti-immigrant, nationalist, culture war, populist fringe. Do you think, uh, is that in the form of someone like Suella Braverman or, is, or do you think there could be a, a Boris Johnson comeback? Well, Boris Johnson obviously fantasizes a lot about comeback. Um, I, I think the, the way in which he finished himself is not his many horrific things. I mean, like Donald Trump, he challenged our constitution. He tried to lock the doors on parliament. He lied to the queen. He insulted the Supreme Court. He lied to parliament. He, he appointed completely inappropriate people corruptly to office. He was forgiven for a lot of that by his voter base. What they won't forgive him for is that he mocked them by essentially partying during COVID. He implemented these very stringent COVID lockdowns and then was caught partying in 10 Downing Street in the Prime Minister's office during that period. So I think he's damaged badly by that. Um, and it, it, you need to imagine Donald Trump being caught doing something that would really be seen as betraying his base. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, they certainly didn't betray his base. It's funny. We I followed the Partygate scandals very closely here, including through your podcast. But at the same time, I, th I think to myself, you know, Donald Trump hosted the Republican National Convention at the White House <laughs> during COVID. So <laughs> everything he does is just as venal and terrible and, you know, stupid, but it's just out in public and somehow he's forgiven. So in the book, you know, I I've, I've read the excerpt. I purchased it today. I'm very excited to read it. But it seems like a lot of the reviews and the coverage so far is it doesn't seem to paint the most hopeful view of government, or at least your experience of government. A few examples, and correct me if I get anything wrong here. It sounds like you were assigned your first ministerial job with basically no heads up or time to prepare, and then immediately driven to the office to meet your staff who also had no time to prepare. It sounds like David Cameron could be at times uninterested in policy and maybe a little bit oblivious to political threats like populism. Uh, Parliament sounds like it's oh, a lot like the US Congress, full of kind of phony, dishonest people, one of whom threatened to punch you. So, you know, is your theory of the case here that, look, we got to get this all out there, sunlight is the best disinfectant, and then we can fix things. But first, I got to tell the truth about how bad it really is. Yes, I, I believe strongly that you, you don't fix things by covering things up. You fix things by being brutally honest about the problems and then challenging people to come with you and fix them. 
And in the UK context, the problem is there is far too much power held in the center. And these is basically we're being run by a 19th century parliamentary system. And I think it's probably true to some extent of the US too, that these are old fashioned constitutions created a very long time ago in mm -hmm. a world before we had a fully educated, mobilized population. We've now got a very educated population who are immensely capable immensely empowered by social media. And the idea that a few women and men stuck in some capital city somehow are going to be able to have the knowledge, uh, the power, the legitimacy to run people's lives in the way that we did in the past is just for the birds. I mean, I'm increasingly a believer in much more radical decentralization. I think governments, um, certainly in the UK and Europe, have, have proven that they're get out of touch so quickly. I mean, it, it's uh, it's almost impossible to avoid the sense that you end up with some very bright people. I'm not saying there aren't very bright people. I mean, you, you represent one of those people, but I think you probably will recognize that I, I saw it maybe most dramatically in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I saw there some very bright, capable people doing some very, very foolish things. And I'm afraid there were there were deeper lessons from the way we screwed up Iraq and Afghanistan, which actually apply to the way we run our own countries. Yeah, I, that's right. Um, I, I noticed that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is not coming to the UN General Assembly this year, nor are a bunch of other leaders. Uh, I'm curious what you make of Sunak's skipping uh, of the of UNGA at a time when there are some questions about you know the UK's global influence post Brexit. Is this too many summits in a row? Is this something deeper? What what do you make of it? I, I think it's very, very sad. Um, the you know I'm I'm speaking to you from New York. I've been doing all the normal round of meetings. I've been doing stuff with USAID. I've just been with the president of Malawi. The the, the the point about these things is not just demonstrating that you care about the United Nations, the multilateral system. And my goodness, there are reasons to care about it, particularly now because we're not going to fix climate change or deal with AI regulation adequately without getting the world together and agreeing. But it's also just a, a much more efficient way of world leaders meeting each other. Mm -hmm. And one of the great reasons that we all come here is that we can, in a day, meet 14, 15 people who we'd otherwise have to fly to 14, 15 countries to meet. So I'm very disappointed Rishi Sunak isn't here. And I think it represents a real lack of ambition and vision from the British government. One of the things I know you've been doing on the margins of this of the UN General Assembly is talking to people about the the excellent nonprofit you work with, Give Directly. We were emailing last week about some of the work Give Directly has been doing in Morocco. It seems like the general theory of the case, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that people in extreme poverty or those recovering from a disaster, they don't need some guy like me in Los Angeles to send blankets. They need cash to buy whatever they think they need at that moment. Um, but how does Give Directly find people in rural Morocco or Eastern Libya and connect with them and, and inform them about this program and this opportunity? So, well, firstly, thank you, Tommy, and thank you for raising it. And thank you for your you know, actually providing your personal support to, to people in Morocco who are, as, as you said when we were talking last week, in the most desperate situation. I mean, it, it's unimaginable. I was in um, Southeast Turkey after the earthquake and they're trying to come to terms with 42,000 people killed in about two minutes or talking to friends, yeah, friends in Marrakesh and the sense of the aftershocks, the sense that nobody, it's not just the trauma of the loss of seeing your 
friends and relatives killed. It's, it's the sense that the aftershocks continue to haunt you. So I, I think that's the first thing. Th thank you for raising this issue because it is so important that we, we, we remain engaged with these things. Um, secondly, I, I thank you for pointing out that actually often, if you've been through a terrible disaster, the most useful thing you can do is be given cash. It's very difficult for you or me to work out whether it's actually impossible for you or me to work out whether somebody whose entire building has been destroyed by an earthquake, what it is they need. Mm -hmm. The temptation is, you know, you put a bunch of clothes in a van and you send it off or you send food, but actually what happens is the food arrives. I mean, maybe you send maize from Idaho, it arrives and the, the recipient sells that in order to get cash to buy what they actually need, which might be a tent over their head, or they might need to get their kids back into school or a family member may have a medical emergency or their business may be collapsing. So the, the best way that you can respond to these very different individual needs is to get them cash. And, and how do we target? Well, GiveDirectly has been working in Morocco for many years. We've got staff on the ground with specialists in delivering cash. And, and so for better or for worse, we, we found ourselves in the epicenter of a crisis where we had some very experienced staff with the communities. And we, we do it through conducting needs assessments. I mean, in the same way that UN agencies do. And I think we're all getting better at it in learning how to identify the people who are at most need and addressing them first. So you're basically seeking them out. You're going to the high LS mountains where there was some of the worst devastation and, and just finding people and saying, hey, this, this program exists, we can get you cash. Uh, we, we are doing it in different geographical areas, but the, the basic approach is to, to make sure that people are in genuinely need that assistance. And that isn't just people in the High Atlas Mountains. There are people right around the edge of Marrakesh who are in terrible need of assistance. But our driving principle is to make sure that we do proper assessments. And that's both asking people questions about their incomes and their family, but also just looking at the conditions in which they're living and putting those things together to make often quite a quick decision because we've got to get the money out quickly on who seems to be in real need. Yeah. So, you know, th there's all these huge global problems that are leading to extreme poverty. There's climate change, there's conflicts, there's COVID. Um, sometimes the international community steps up to tackle them. More often recently, it feels like big promises on climate change, for example, get forgotten when you know Russia invades Ukraine and the price of gas goes up and everyone's worried about sort of the near-term political considerations. What role do you think nonprofits and NGOs like yours play at a time when there's this broader political dysfunction, not just in capitals, but also at the UN, which you know hasn't been able to get a lot done these days. I think the, the, the major thing that we can do is to provide hope. Um, you're absolutely right. People are turning away from extreme poverty. You remember, well, we remember back in the 90s and 2000s, we were gonna make poverty history, the sustainable development goal. Number one of the UN was gonna be to end extreme poverty by 2030. And the truth of the matter is, that we've gone from 170 million people living in extreme poverty in Sub-Saharan Africa in 1980 to 470 million people living in extreme poverty there today. Wow. And there are many things that have gone wrong along the way. Uh, many of the things that actually drove those movements in the 90s and 2000s are less strong. Churches are less strong, trade union movements are less strong, international solidarity is less strong. It's interesting also there's been a change in celebrity culture. It's more and more difficult to get famous people to actually endorse campaigns on poverty because they're worried about being accused of being hypocrites and being marginalized. Music culture has changed. 
But the biggest problem is that people have lost hope. They think there's no solutions out there, that the whole thing's a waste of time. There's no point giving international aid. Nothing's going to get better. So from GiveDirectly's point of view, we are there to say there have been over 350 academic papers studying giving cash. And it demonstrates through comparing very scientifically with university partners what happens if you give cash compared to other interventions, that cash can have a miraculous transformatory impact on poverty, that there is a solution, that there's a way of putting the tens of billions of dollars of international development aid to much, much better use. And that this is something that we can fix in our lifetimes. I mean, if you're talking about saving the world, probably the, from my point of view, one of the biggest single moral outrages of our age is the fact that there are 700 million people living in this world who are eating once a day, once every two days, who can't put an adequate roof over their head, and whose lives would be transformed by a gift of six or $700. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you struggled with this in your many roles in government. I mean, it seems like Americans think that the international assistance budget is drastically larger than it actually is. I know that um, there has been you know, some, some disagreement in, uh, in the Labor Party currently about how much assistance to give going forward. Do you have any thoughts on how to I, I don't know, fight those political fights and win them and help people understand that it's in our interests to help people overseas, that this is not money that's getting exploited in some way? I, th I think it's it's difficult. I mean, if there was an easy answer, we'd all be driving up our aid budgets. Yeah. Tommy, you'll, you'll know yourself that one thing to do is to remind people that there's a degree of self-interest here, that if Africa finds itself in unrelenting poverty, it's a big problem for the world. I mean, one in 10 children born in the world will be born in Nigeria by 2050. 40% of the world's population will be in Africa by the end of the century. And if those countries are left in extreme poverty, that is where security threats will come from. It's obviously where migration is flowing across into Europe, but it's also where pandemics will come from, where global insecurity will come from, and also a huge missed opportunity. I mean, look at it on the bright side. These are also, if you invest properly, could be great markets for American goods. They could be fantastic labor force to ally with American capital. This is the place from which a lot of the raw materials we need to power the energy transition as we go for a green revolution, the cobalt, the lithium for our batteries are going to come out of Africa. So you, you tell that story, you tell the self-interest story, but you can't lose. And I think this is sometimes, I think politicians are a little cowardly about this. You cannot lose the ethical argument too. The truth of the matter is you have to be able to say, in the end, it is not just that you and I live in these very comfortable positions and that we can do things to help people who are on this edge of starvation and we're not doing it. I mean, there was actually, a, I, I saw um, an American politician that I admired being confronted with this. And he said, somebody said to him, but aren't people in America suffering? And he said, yeah, people in America are suffering, but People in Malawi, people in Rwanda are suffering far, far more at a level that we can't begin to imagine. And we got to do our bit to help them too. Yeah, absolutely agree. So I want to talk about the podcast before we before we wrap. I, I love the show because you uh, and your co-host, Alistair Campbell, who's a top aide to, to Tony Blair and the Labor Party, sort of like a 
people, our listeners might think of like a David Axelrod in the UK. Um, you guys talk a lot about foreign policy, and I really appreciate that. You did a two-episode series on the Iraq War that I thought was particularly riveting. You argued, I thought, convincingly that the war was a disaster. I think that's sort of a, a fact at this point. <laughs> I think Alistair's position was more, you know, the intelligence at the time was dire. We don't know how bad Saddam Hussein could have been if left in charge. I hope I'm characterizing yeah. it fairly. It got a little heated. Do you guys ever need to like uh, pause the Zoom, walk away, mute things during tapings to cool off, or how does that go? Well, I think we should we should be sharing podcast therapy. I don't know how this how this happens with your podcasting partner. No, there's definitely times like that. I mean, you know, I was um, I'm here at the UN General Assembly, so I'm running between all these different meetings, and I did a podcast with Alistair this morning, and I was in real trouble because. I suddenly dropped in at two hours notice. I think we really need to discuss the UN. And he was like, we've been planning this podcast for weeks. How can you do this to me? I've got no time to prepare. And he came on and he was really grumpy. And I was very worried for the first 10 minutes. This is going to be terrible. I mean, he seems so angry with me. I don't know how we're going to make it through this. Somehow he kind of perked up. But yeah, it's it's an issue. Maybe you two, though, are, are, are more chilled individuals. Maybe you don't get drawn into that that horror. Oh, no, it, it happens. I mean, Ben and I just kind of, we do our thing and we're fine. Uh, on Pots of America, the, the the politics show, you know, we've been doing this. When you're sharing a microphone, an office, and a company for six years, you know, things get heated and you yell it out <laughs> and come back. But it's 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 a fun show because, I, look, I think um, if I were to criticize some of my shows here at, at Crooked Media, it's that there's too often um, uh, rampant agreement. Uh, and I like the fact that you guys mix it up. I like that I can hear when Alistair's pissed off. It means he's passionate <laughs> about something. I think there's there's value to that. Um, it's it's riveting listening for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I appreciate it. Oh, well, Tommy, thank you. And I, I hope you enjoy How Not to Be a Politician because I, I hope the book, you know, I, I, it's a funny thing to do to a U.S. audience because, of course, it's it's nine and a half years of painful experience of fighting bureaucracy, fighting populism in Britain. But I sometimes think that looking at, an issue like populism from another angle, looking at Donald Trump through the spectrum of Boris Johnson can be helpful because it, it helps us all think together about what the solutions can be, how we can provide a genuinely inspiring, emotional, logical vision of a better future that doesn't fall into just defending the past. No, I think that's right. And I think it is important to to see similar problems in different systems because in the US, I think, Look, there's a lot of problems with the two-party system. There's a lot of problems with the electoral college. There's a lot of, you know, gerrymandering. There's a lot of structural challenges that we have. But it's important to note that a parliamentary system is dealing with a lot of the same exact kind of buffoonish figures who are, you know, making the same arguments. And then Germany with the AFD, Sweden, mm -hmm. Finland. I mean, it's terrifying the spread of right-wing populism across Europe. I mean, I think, and and a lot of that is driven by social media. But I think AI is going to have a, a a very dramatic effect on the next US election. And I think it's just going to give much more power to these forces all over the world. Yeah, we're, we're for, for the Russians, I think it feels like a binary choice between Trump, who will cut off assistance to Ukraine, and Biden, who will not. So I'm, we're very worried about AI and electoral interference going forward. But I know you got a busy schedule up there. Uh, incredibly grateful that you would do the show. So everyone should check out How Not to Be a Politician is the book, uh, and the rest is politics is the podcast. You will enjoy both. And uh, thanks for doing the show. Thank you very much. And the charity, Give Directly. Thank you, Give directly. so much. Great charity. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Rory for doing the show. Thanks again to uh, Shiva 
the surfing snake. Thanks to Aaron Rodgers for four plays. Uh, I think he gets like I, I mean, so uh, much forty-five million dollars guaranteed. So, so much money. Yeah, it's not great. Have a lot of cap space next year. Yeah, it's well, no. Hopefully. He's coming back. He said he's coming Shit. back. Like uh, that's that's a classic Jets thing, right? Like we can't even really move on from him because we're on the hook to pay him next year. So, you know, I don't know. I'd like when roll, roll the dice on Kaepernick or something. Pitchers and catchers report. Yeah, <laughs> the Mets. You well, you know, there's not a lot to look forward to. The, the Knicks are good. Okay, so like I'll I'm, take it. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. I mean, they're not as good as Celtics, but I'll take it. Yeah, we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Uh, all right, that's it for us this week. Talk to you guys soon. Posse of the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Reed Sherling. Our producer is Alona Minkowski, and associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our studio technician is David Tolls. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. Conflicts don't just get resolved on their own. Most go through a grueling process of give and take, usually behind closed doors. But The Negotiators, a podcast from foreign policy and Doha debates, is putting listeners in the room. Each episode of The Negotiators features one mediator, one diplomat, or one troubleshooter telling the story of how they got the deal. You'll hear about the 1992 peace agreement among rival street gangs in Los Angeles, the U.S. women's national soccer team fight for equal pay, the 1998 Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, and much, much more. Season three of The Negotiators, hosted by Jen Williams, is out now. Follow and listen wherever you get your podcasts.